Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double n. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 540 of the podcast and it is Saturday the 20th of March 2021 as I record this. In today's show, I'm talking to Debbie Young about writing cosy mystery, an extremely popular genre right now at a time when people want feel-good escapist fiction with uh, nothing really bad happening (laughs) and no pandemic. Uh, It's always interesting to hear from authors writing in different genres. This is not a genre I read or write. And Hawkesbury Upton, where Debbie lives, is exactly what you would imagine of the quintessential English village. And Debbie runs a village festival. And this village and the festival was the basis of one of her series of books. And in fact, I drive past the turnoff on the way to my dad's through the Cotswolds when I, I can, when I'm allowed to visit my dad out of pandemic times. And I love that Debbie's books fit so well with her life living in the village and she talks a bit about how she has to obviously not write exact (laughs) characters from the village but uh, how so many of them do just resonate with that life so I know you're going to enjoy that and it's funny because we were talking about writing about the place where you live and I really struggled to feel at home here in Bath like when we first moved here from London in 2015 I was like what is this place this is all Jane Austen and bonnets and Georgian architecture and yes it's beautiful but I could never live here it's just not gritty enough (laughs) and then I discovered this dark side by writing Map of Shadows I researched a lot more about the darker side of Bath and I've talked about this in my books and travel podcast but you know the 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 cursed tablets in the Roman baths and the fact that Mary Shelley wrote most of Frankenstein here. <laughs> and in fact, there's a museum opening up just up from the Jane Austen Museum, which is far more my side of Bath. So we all find writing inspiration from places. Obviously, every book has a setting. And I've written, you know, my um, Brooke and Daniel books are set in London, where we were living for five years. And Risen Gods is set in New Zealand and I, I've always written about where I've lived but it's funny because I was thinking when I was talking to Debbie I definitely am not someone who could live in a little village but I'm just as inspired by the place where I live and maybe that's true for you too. Anyway I think you'll enjoy it it's definitely a, a fun interview. Also in the interview I do mention the latest K-Lytics report which uh, which was about mystery thrillers and suspense uh, where Cozy Mystery was shown to be one of the most popular subgenres. And if you don't know K-Lytics, Alex puts out reports every month in different genres. And uh, yes, I have a link at thecreativepen.com forward slash genre. So G-E-N-R-E, thecreativepen.com forward slash genre. And uh, Alex puts out new reports all the time. So he's always updating them and uh, they're very helpful. So that interview with Debbie is coming up soon. 
In publishing news this week, lots of audio stuff. <laughs> it really is audio-tastic. If you're not convinced of the power of audio yet, well, you guys are. You're listening to the show. <laughs> anyway, Findaway Voices released their headphone report on data from 2020, focused on going wide with audio. Interestingly, in terms of units sold, 48% was subscription, 29% a la carte, 23% libraries. Now, this is really fascinating to me and one of the reasons I'm so passionate about being wide. Uh, with all different formats because your books are not available in libraries unless you are wide and uh, so I love this I love that 23% now through libraries now all the main genres had double or triple digit growth in 2020 fiction still growing uh, in terms of lessons and in fact my arcane uh, thriller series is part of action adventure and that had 493% growth which is awesome Nonfiction had even bigger growth with some really interesting subcategories. Uh, audiobooks about race and discrimination had over 2,700% growth due to the Black Lives Matter movement. Now, remember, this would have been from quite a small base, um, but it's really interesting to see that these are big figures. So 646% growth in personal finance. Nature books, 406%. I've been reading a lot of nature books, actually reading and listening. So obviously... Many of these books had a sort of low threshold before, but I think the overall message is what we're seeing is there's a lot of growth in listening across multiple genres. So if people say, oh, that genre doesn't do so well in audio, I think things are changing as more and more people are listening. Wide also means global reach. So excluding the US, they reported um, the markets with top top growth included Canada, Australia, Sweden and the UK, with emerging markets including Mexico, the Netherlands and Spain. And Spanish is the second language represented after English, which you would expect given um, the US obviously has Spanish as a, uh, at the moment, a, a second language. Uh, so remember, you can set your own price when wide and do promo marking, promo pricing. <laughs> for Chirp and other markets. They also have some stats from authors distributing through Findaway. 65% of series earned more wide than if they had been exclusive and 30% of authors made more than double what they had made exclusive. So I think that's really interesting and certainly in the Wide for the Win group and um, you can find people who are doing really well with wide audio and uh, you can go wide with your audio through Findaway Voices and you can still distribute to Audible. This is this is the thing about wide. People always say, oh, well, does that mean I'm not going to be able to get onto these um, other platforms? No, of course. You can get on these platforms. You can uh, put your books on Audible, but it's just a non-exclusive contract. That's all. And if you put it through Findaway, they can put it on all these platforms anyway. And this is what I love with the world we are in now. The possibilities we have is that we can reach <laughs> so many different places. And I really think we've got to a point where you don't know what people are listening on or consuming or reading on. or We just can't know. You might have your preferences, but that's not how everyone else in the world is consuming. So uh, off the back of that, BookBub also has a great article on how to self-publish audiobooks with 16 tips from authors doing well with wide audio. Yes, including me. <laughs> it includes tips on diversifying income, giving readers the format they prefer, knowing when it's the right time to invest, distribution to libraries, marketing tips and more. And uh, I love BookBub's Chirp and um, actually had one of my best audio months recently with a Chirp deal, which is run by BookBub and only available to those with wide audio because you have to be able to change your price. 
So also in audio, Edison Research released their Infinite Dial report this week, which is all about audio in the USA. Had the headline, 80 million Americans listen to podcasts weekly with the most diverse audience ever. Online audio listening and smart speaker ownership show continued growth. So while there was an initial dip at the beginning of the pandemic, because let's face it, we were all watching the news, (laughs) audio listening is now higher than ever, with people listening for more time than they did before. 40 and they go into diversity so 43% of the monthly podcast audience is not white and this and there is a lot more diversity in creation as well and I wanted to encourage everyone on this and um, it's not just white non-white obviously it's also gender and uh, just where you are whatever your situation you can be a voice in this niche some there are some saturated niches obviously for example um the tech bro podcast space is pretty heavily dominated by some big names but many other niches have room for many other voices so i want to encourage you it's a bit like blogging was 5 years ago really i think 5 10 years ago even that there is room there is always room for new voices. And remember, a lot of people start podcasts and stop them <laughs> and then start new ones. Jay Thorne being a great example of Jay's listening. Uh, Jay has had, I can't even, I don't even know how many podcasts Jay has had at this point. But, uh, you know, most people are not like me and keep them going for whatever, 11 years, 12 years. <laughs> anyway, that I thought that was interesting. Also, one third of Americans approximately 94 million people, this is uh, Americans over the age of 12, now own a smart speaker. So smart speakers are becoming, maybe you're listening to this on a smart speaker, for example. And other interesting thing, for the first time in the history of the study, Facebook is no longer named as the social media brand used most often. 47% say it's the platform they use the most, down from 62% back in 2016. So I think that's really interesting. I certainly, I'm, I've always been more a Twitter person than a Facebook person, but, it, you know, people have really moved into the, the other things. Whether they include Instagram in that, because obviously Instagram is owned by, <laughs> by Facebook. Uh, so I thought that was interesting. So that's the Edison report. There's a lot more detail in there if you want to check it out. Links in the show notes. I also saw an interesting article in The Guardian this week about the future of audio cookbooks. Well, not just audio cookbooks, but audio in general, uh, featuring uh, an audio book called Breaking Eggs by Ruby Tando. So I had thought that maybe cookbooks and more physical task-based books, practical books, would not be appropriate for audio. But there is a trend for these audio guidebooks, which leave space for you to execute whatever task is being talked about. So they might say, weigh 100 grams of plain flour, and then wait, maybe play some music. And the amount of time it might take you to weigh 100 grams of flour... And I also heard from a friend about a writing podcast that gives a prompt and then keeps running in silence for 10 minutes. So I might say, you know, what's a memory you have from a summer? You have five minutes to free write on that. Go. And then maybe they'll play some music or have just silence. And actually, it's funny because this is, you know, my husband does yoga every morning and he has a yoga app. And of course, that's what they do on these 
apps is they will say go into this position and hold and breathe in and out and all of that. And I feel like we need to expand our definition of what an audiobook is. And maybe this crosses over into podcasting. But of course, these are two very different things. And I was thinking about our workbooks. So many of us who write nonfiction, we have workbooks. So I have workbooks. So I, I've never even considered that they could be an audio product. And now I'm thinking, well, they could be an audio product. I could sell them for pretty cheap because there's not much content. But for example, I don't know, for two ninety nine or something, you get a really long audiobook with questions and time for you to write your answers, for example. So I'm fascinated by this. And this was compounded by Quartz magazine this week, where I saw that IKEA have replaced their print catalogue with a witty and amusing audiobook. <laughs> I was like, what is going on? Because I, I, you know, we all do eventually, you know, shop at Ikea. And uh, I've done quite a lot of shopping at Ikea over the years. And uh, the print catalogue back in the day when we were living in Australia, like a decade ago, uh, that was quite cool. And they've stopped that now. But to have a catalogue by audiobook, it's just weird to me. But maybe it's... um. It's just this way I want us to start thinking. There are many more opportunities in these formats than we consider uh, that and it's only growing. So please start being more broad in your ideas about what things are. It's not an audiobook is not a podcast like this, you know, where I'm free talking, but it doesn't just have to be a spoken word rendition of of text. There are many options. And I feel the same way about the digital scarcity and the nifties uh, from the episode or so ago with uh, Simon Pierre Marion. And uh, it's there are these things that are arising now that we just didn't think were possible because we're constrained by the way the traditional industry has always done things. So it's time to break out of that, I think. And um, back on my soapbox, it's another reason not to sign a contract for all formats existing now and to be invented. This is one of my uh, catchphrases I hope will go into your head so it will save you in the future. Then just a couple more things. Spotify launched Loud and Clear this week, a site that aims to increase transparency by sharing data about the global streaming economy, breaking down the royalty system and the process. And this is interesting on many levels. One, obviously, we need to watch Spotify because they may be coming into the audiobook space and uh, they are well ahead on all this technology. Plus, this is exactly what we need in publishing. And I'm really encouraged by their desire to be more transparent. And I've also been attending sessions at Digital South by Southwest this week. And I've been so encouraged to hear from empowered creative entrepreneur independent musicians, indie musicians. And I'm going to share some thoughts on that next week. I'm also attending the Turing AI conference this week, uh, this coming week, and uh, all online, of course, I really wish I could be there in person because the Turing conference is in London. Uh, so there's so much going on right now. It's it's very exciting. And as, I, as I've said a couple of times recently, I do feel that the earth is starting to move under the feet of what we have assumed for the last decade is things are definitely starting to shift and they're shifting faster in things like music and other things but they it's coming in our, in our area of the world so as ever uh fun times ahead exciting times if it wasn't exciting then why would we even bother <laughs> it would just be here's another book but no this is uh, this is fun and you know I will keep sharing as I learn things over time I'm just a learning junkie clearly so uh also 
on selling direct with audio and ebooks, have a listen to the Six Figure Authors podcast this week with Damon Courtney from Book Funnel talking about all of this, selling direct. Damon is fantastic. So if you want to learn more about that, go check it out. I also have a tutorial, thecreativepen.com forward slash sell direct tutorial, links in the show notes. And of course, uh, I sell ebooks and audiobooks direct. And thanks to everyone who did buy from me this week with the launch of How to Make a Living with Your Writing third edition. Uh, Many of you have bought direct from me at payhip.com forward slash thecreativepen. Direct sales is one of the most important ways that authors can control their income streams. And uh, if you, even if you are not, don't want to do it, in the beginning of that tutorial, I go into all the reasons why it's such a good idea. And uh, you have one week left to use my lockdown promo code, which is 50% off all my ebooks and audiobooks at payhip.com forward slash the creative pen. Use lockdown, all caps, in the coupon field. And uh, yeah. So that will finish at the end of March 2021, because in April, we are moving into the next stage out of lockdown, which means I can actually go out of my area and see my mum and my dad and stuff. So I'm pretty excited about that. Two more quick things. Again, in audio, I sent my first audio tweets this week. It is now available and rolled out to a wider group. I'll link to my tweet in the show notes or if you go to twitter.com forward slash the creative pen on Twitter, um, there's a media button, a media tab, and that's where they appear. And uh, if you if you use Twitter, you know, you just click to, to tweet and it will come up as a little audio button as an option. You get 140 seconds, I think, and then it will automatically create a second tweet. So I'm excited about these. I think it's going to be, it's definitely something I want to use. And the first one, I just kind of free thought. And the second one, I wrote down what I was going to say first. I think both of those things will be interesting when I go to events and see people in person. I'm going to start using that as a way to share more clips because I hate doing video, but I think I will absolutely enjoy doing more audio. So yes, audio tweeting, now a thing. And finally, in ebook news, The Verge reports a new Nook device is about to be launched, which is, you know, they are not out yet. Barnes & Noble isn't letting its older e-reader hardware or the incredibly saturated Android tablet market stand in its way. It seems the Nook brand is about to get yet another refresh in the coming weeks. So there we go. Barnes & Noble back in the game with another Nook. Interesting times. So quick personal update, because to be honest, this week has been busy with the launch of How to Make a Living with Your Writing 3rd Edition out now. I'm also in the final stages of the German edition of Your Author Business Plan and also signed a contract for the same book in French. So I'm licensing in French. Um and uh, doing German myself. I've also been doing admin and website stuff and going to the South by Southwest online conference that I mentioned. And uh, (laughs) I'm so excited about things that I never thought I would be excited about, which is I have a haircut booked uh, in early May. Now, this is this is very exciting. I haven't had a haircut since oh November. <laughs> so when we were briefly out of lockdown and also managed to book a restaurant for late April sitting outside. Isn't it funny how the things that I never would have said were exciting are now very exciting. I hope you are having exciting times too. <laughs> uh, thanks to all your emails and tweets and comments this week. Uh, Deborah Levinson says, ever since I discovered your podcast, Joanna, you've accompanied me around the hood countless times. You should feel right at home in Connecticut. 
Connecticut is not somewhere I have been. Uh, Melanie Bertolo says, I miss cafe and library writing so much. I'm in Toronto. I just want to sit and write amongst people. Know what you mean, Melanie. And uh, in fact, I wanted to also share this tweet from Catherine Coromilas, who said, uh, this, this was in response to my first audio tweet about missing my writing cafe. And she said, totally feel the same way. During lockdown, I've been attending writershour.com, which is on Zoom with mics off, video on, warm beverages, writing alone, but together do come along. And so I went to writershour.com and indeed they have writing spots at different time zones over the day and you sit there uh, on Zoom. I haven't done it yet, but it's something I'm considering, uh, although it's usually at the time when I'm doing some exercise or something, but I, it is interesting. I, I'm kind of slightly scared of it, but I might well try it. So it, you can also check it out, writershour.com. So remember, you can always tweet me at the creative pen with a double N. You can leave a comment on the show notes. You can always find them at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast and uh, click on the link and leave a comment. You can also email me, joanna at thecreativepen.com. Right, so today's show is sponsored by Pro Writing Aid, writing and editing software that goes way beyond just grammar and typo checking. And I love Pro Writing Aid again, you know, with uh, how to make a living with your writing for f- fiction and non-fiction. One of the best things about Pro Writing Aid is the ability to do the whole document. There are other editing and writing checkers that you can copy and paste chapters in and and things, but this does whole document checking and integrates with Scrivener. And I use it multiple times during my process. So I use it before sending to my editor. I I do it and then obviously I make changes. When my editor comes back, then I I use it again before I send it to my um, proofreader and I use it again before publication. It is fantastic. I learn something every time, although I keep learning things and then I find I'm learning the same things the following time. So for example, passive voice. We are all, I don't know why we struggle so much with passive voice. I don't know why we all struggle so much with passive voice, but it changing our writing to be more active really moves it forward. It also cuts down words. It's incredible. So I definitely love that. I love the, um, they have sentence length variation and complexity, adverbs, repeated words, which is something if you don't um, watch out for can become like your writer's tick. <laughs> So, for example, nodding. If you if you find you're you're overusing nodding, you need some different active active movements. Commas are my own personal nemesis. I know that is for many of you too. Also, typos for the specific type of English you want to use. Uh, I also find that it's really super useful whether you are technical or not. So, my mum, who writes as Penny Appleton, is pretty tech phobic, but she loves pro writing aid. She uses a lot of dictation and. <laughs> She finds herself using a lot of exclamation marks, for example. Pro Writing Aid helps her shape her rough drafts a lot more. It also has a ton more reports for word nerds like me and probably you. And you can just learn a lot about your writing using Pro Writing Aid. So check out the free edition or get 25% off the premium edition by using my link, prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, prowritingaid.com forward slash Joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing, but my time in creating the show and my brain is sponsored by my patrons, uh, especially the limited series of AI related and futurist topics. Another one coming soon.
Thanks to new and returning patrons in the last few weeks, including Meridian Writing Academy and JQ Berry. And thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. And of course, this week I sent out the monthly Q&A answering questions. That's an extra 40 to 45 minutes of me answering questions from patrons, which you can get the backlist of if you support the show for a couple of euro or GBP or US dollars or Canadian dollars a month. A uh, couple of coffees a month or just a coffee if you're if you'd like to. And I do drink a lot of coffee. So you can support the show at patreon.com forward slash the creative pen. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash the creative pen. Right, let's get into the interview with Debbie. Debbie Young is the author of Cozy Mysteries and Feel Good Contemporary Fiction, set in an English village in the Cotswolds. She also writes books for authors and runs the Hawkesbury Upton Literary Festival. Welcome back, Debbie. Hello, lovely to be here, Joanna. Thank you very much. Oh, no, it's great to have you on the show. Now, you have been on before talking about getting books into bookstores, but today we're focusing on your fiction. So tell us a bit more about you and how you got into writing Feel Good Stories. Well, I've I've always been a bit of a Pollyanna, almost annoyingly optimistic. <laughs> Sometimes I <like laughs> me to, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's the way to be, isn't it? Especially at the moment, you know, you want to want to be upbeat and, and look for the bright side of things. Definitely the the glass half full person. And so I've always been quite sort of you know jolly and upbeat and cheerful. And I like reading happy books with happy endings. They have to be convincing happy endings, not just sort of neat and happy for the sake of it. So it was fairly natural for me to go into writing upbeat fiction. I'm also ever so suggestible. I scare very easily, um, have nightmares at at scary things on the telly. Um, I've got a teenage daughter and for some years now we've had role reversal where she's told me when to look away from the screen. So I don't get frightened. Um, So I'd I'd get too sad. And and I like... um, I like cheerful things. I've always loved writing since I was a child, spent a career in journalism and PR writing businessy things. And when I decided some time ago to start focusing more on writing fiction and writing what I'd really wanted to write when I grew up, um, I started writing short stories and found myself writing mostly humorous ones, funny ones. I mean, I do like a laugh. I like a joke. I like jolly things. Um, I'm interested in eccentric and unusual characters as well. And they, as I built up my confidence and competence, I suppose, as well, in writing funny short stories, I decided that I really wanted to move on to novels. And because I've always, always loved upbeat traditional mysteries, which I guess you would call cosy mysteries now, the Agatha Christie kind, cosy mysteries is more of a a newcomer as a category compared to the golden age of mysteries when my heroes like Agatha Christie and Dorothy L. Sayers and Marjorie Allingham were writing. And so it was it was quite natural for me to go in, in that direction. Also, I mean, this was about 11, 10, 10, 11 years ago, I was deciding you know, what I should be writing long term. And at that point, I had lived in my little Cotswold village for 20 years. I've now now lived here over 30 years, um, been part of village life really from day one. I've served on just about every committee in the village. My daughter's been through the village school. Um, I'm now in the church choir. I've joined the bell ringers, been on the village show committee, all this sort of thing. There's an endless amount of material there. But also, I love community life. I love this village life. I've grown up in a London suburb. Um, 
where you didn't know all your neighbours, you didn't speak to all your neighbours here, where everybody knows everybody else. It's a it's a lovely way to live. It suits me. It wouldn't suit everybody, but it suits me very well. Um, and I wanted to celebrate that in my fiction. So although we've never had any murders here, we have the old mystery, but no murders that have been found out. Anyway. <laughs> and so it was it was natural that I would choose that setting for my first series of novels, which are the Sophie Sayers Village Mysteries. Um, writing about somewhere that you're very, that you know very well, that you feel that you're very fond of and you like very much, I think makes the whole thing more enjoyable and easier. And I think it should be enjoyable. And when I came to diversify into a second series, which is set in the same parish as the Sophie Sayers Village Mysteries, but just up the road in a um, private girls boarding school, quite an eccentric boarding school. Um, I drew on the 13 years experience I had working um, in the offices of a girls boarding school. So that was another community that I knew very well. Now, with both of these kinds of communities, with both the village, and with the boarding school they are classic settings really for a cosy mystery and that you've got a clearly identifiable little world of its own so you can do a lot of world building you've got finite borders really to that world so you've got your cast of characters pretty much staying put so there's always something sort of theatrical and stagey about it. You know, you've got your own mm-hmm. world that, that, that makes a very good setting for this kind of book. So I felt that I had two very good sets of experiences which would allow me to make those worlds. I've got another one that I'm thinking of doing um, later on when, I've, when I'm a bit further down the road with my second series, which will be set in, in the world of, uh, world of um, commerce. In, um, I worked for PR consultancies for, for a few years and they are also very interesting, create a very interesting setting. But that's, so that's another one. But I'll that might not be quite as cosy. I haven't quite decided. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, it's really interesting because as, as we discuss this, we are still in pandemic times and it is a very difficult time for people. And uh, I had a feeling that people would be reading these types of books. And the latest Calytics report that I recently saw shows that cosy culinary mysteries and also amateur sleuth mysteries are ticking up, which I think is just evidence that people want these kind of feel good books but I wondered about you personally like you mentioned you're annoyingly optimistic but it's funny <laughs> I'm annoyingly optimistic with my non-fiction and yet I tend to write the darker yeah. books which yeah. is you know can, and I can't I don't read your genre and I uh, I can't write it either my mum loves this kind of stuff because my mum's yes. more like you she won't watch I, I'll say yeah. don't watch that mum on tv and stuff like that but how have you managed to keep your writing upbeat during difficult times? Well, I think it serves the same purpose for me as it does for the reader, really, in that it cheers me up and it means that I can go down my little rabbit hole when I sit down at my desk to write, I'm going into my safe little world of Wendelbury Barrow or of St Bride's School where... I can feel safe. There's no pandemic, no germs there, you know, no <laughs> viruses, and there won't be. I'm never going to write about coronavirus. I think I just get the same buzz as it from it as, as a reader would, would get, and and I something. It's like a a switch just sort of flicks in my brain when I sit down with my pen and paper. I write by hand, as you know. I sit down with my fountain pen, my pad of paper, and I'm just transported. I'm like going through and through the back of the wardrobe to Narnia you know I'm there <laughs> in my happy little world with my lovely cast of characters um, I write 
I've, I'm on the just writing the seventh Sophie Sayers Village Mystery now, and I've got probably about ten, eight characters that have been central to the story since since the first book, adding new characters as I go go along. And in each book, there's new characters to add interest and variety. And um, it's it's just nice to be in their company again. Oh, I'll go and spend the morning with Sophie. <laughs> go and visit Hector's bookshop, you know, or something. Oh, well, that's a safe mm. world to explore. Yeah, and I I love that. I think that's great. But you mentioned that you write on paper. I think everyone's now going, what? Paper and pen? <laughs> what is this strange behaviour? So do you mean you outline that way or you do write uh, longhand for the whole book and then type it up later? I know it sounds completely mad and Luddite, but I've arrived at the point where I've realised that I write best if I'm writing with a pen, easy flowing pen, fountain pen, ideally, on paper the old sort of lined pad that you had at school you know and um, although I am I hasten to add I'm very computer literate I type really fast and I have tried I've tried audio I wrote my second novel using audio I typed probably the first first one and probably the third or fourth but then at that point I realized that the story was because I'm of the school of thought where I just want to get the first draft down and there, there are there is all sorts of there's all sorts of scientific research that shows that your hand writing the word is in t- communication with the brain in a slightly different way to if you're typing, even if you're a touch, fast touch typist as I am, or I don't have to think about where my fingers are going on the keyboard, it just unlocks things more easily for me. It's a nice tactile thing as well. You know, the flow of the ink on the paper, I think, is very soothing. It does mean it's a complete pain when you have to type it all up, <laughs> of course, <laughs> but, but that also serves as the um, first edit as well because uh, as I'm typing up then I'm sort of correcting things as I go along and I have to confess I have also had a a virtual assistant typing for me before lockdown but um, it's not as easy to pass the, the manuscript back and forth in the same way now and also that my virtual assistant is um has got kids at home and working from home and I think probably just couldn't cope with that as well at the moment so so I'm gonna have I'm nearing the end hopefully today is going to be the magic day when I finish book seven and then the, the typing will begin when I should probably be cursing myself but I am sure that I will still go on writing this way and if if people out there are thinking no that's mad I would urge them to give it a try and see if they like doing it because you don't know until you try I'm always astonished by how many people how many writers don't touch type and are having to look at the keyboard all the time they're typing? And I think that would be a horrendous distraction. I don't know how people do that at all. No, but, it's, um, it's really, really interesting. I know uh, Neil Gaiman is another one who writes a longhand. And it is, it's funny, I think, so, you know, you find your way, don't you? And then you, but as you said, you've tried different things. You tried dictation. I think when you said audio, you meant dictation and, uh, and typing. Yeah. Uh, as well so yeah that's really interesting so let's come back to the what is the cozy mystery genre you mentioned clearly identifiable world which is real life right is there cozy mystery in fantasy and other things as well well that's very interesting you may just have invented a whole new genre (laughs) but I don't know I don't don't read fantasy particularly but um that I, I think that's a possibility but you would need to make sure that your cozy readers were expecting fantasy a fantasy world as well an unreal world I I think it generally the places that people write about are in cozy mystery are 
not necessarily absolutely idyllic, but they, they're not flawless, but they would be places where you might like to live. I mean, I quite often have people saying to me, oh, I think I'll come and live in Wendelbury Barrow. <laughs> because they, especially now, because it just seems a nice, safe world. It's also a pretty place, historic place. Um, other settings can include seaside towns, sort of cathedral towns, market towns, um, not very often in big cities. I think having the sort of closed community in the same way that Agatha Christie does with her island hotels and things like that is a useful device as well as, as, as being a pleasurable thing to read about. So it should be somewhere that, that, that would be a pleasant place um, until the dead bodies start turning up. <laughs> <laughs> and what are some of the important tropes of the cosy genre? They have to be, there's, there are very clear rules that you um, break at your peril if you don't want to upset readers. When people pick up a cosy, they expect it to be clean, no swearing, no set no overt sex you can drop hints but nothing graphic nothing terribly grisly or violent obviously you have to dispatch somebody somehow if you go to have a murder <laughs> story but you don't just you don't describe all the all the horrible detail I mean I've had some things like the, the one that I'm murder wise book somebody falls down a well so you can't even see the mess you know because <laughs> down the well <laughs> um in best murder in show the, the murder is so neat and tidy that it looks like somebody's died of natural causes. And so you the, the, you can read it on a full stomach without fear. You know, they're, they're not things that are going to put you off for dinner. The murder victim should be someone who is really unlikable, so that they're or not so likable that their death really upsets the reader. Oh, right. So it's got to be like deserved. Sort of gen- <laughs> yeah, it's got to be got to be sort of a gentle, there's a there's there's sort of gentle moral correctness to this real sense of right and wrong in in my books the people who are murdered the people who are the murderer and generally the people who are murdered I'm not giving any plot spoilers are people who are unlikable there can be people who are, who are murdered who are likable but the murderer is not going to be somebody who who the reader is going to feel sympathy towards you expect there to be a lovable central character maybe romantic interest not always it's not essential if there's not a romantic interest then there should be sort of camaraderie so there might be a sidekick a bit like Poirot and Captain Hastings you know and you need a foil to the um, central character who's doing the sleuthing there should also be lots of red herrings I think a cosy mystery should be like a cryptic crossword puzzle which will be fun to solve I think fun is a really important feature of cosy so the the reader should feel like they're engaged alongside the sleuth trying to solve the mystery um there should be enough i mean a lot of the golden lot of the rules that were laid down by the detective um club in the golden age of crime still apply i think there's 10 rules some of which are a bit outdated like there should be no chinaman because they were sort of a 1920s 20s cliche of having the chinaman as the villains but the, the rules such as there should be no coincidence there shouldn't be the coincidence shouldn't be the the, the reason that the, the thing gets solved there shouldn't be anything that is just not believable the clue the Readers should have all the information they need to solve the crime, even if they don't. So all the clues should be planted in the mystery so that the really observant or experienced reader 
will identify the criminal maybe even before the the fictitious sleuth does. Ideally, you don't want them to, but actually it doesn't matter that much if they do, provided they enjoy the experience because it makes them feel clever if they they do (laughs) spot it first. There should be no children or animals harmed, nobody really vulnerable who um, who really suffers. I mean, some people do make exceptions to this, but generally people want a safe a safe space in a cosy mystery. I think the denouement at the end should be should have a happy it should be a happy ending for everybody concerned, apart from obviously the the victim. Justice should be done. Um, there's also, I think that although I know a lot of my readers are sort of fifty plus, it should I aim also at writing books that should be that could be read by children. And I know I've got a, a local girl who has been reading my books since about the age of twelve. So I bear her in mind, as well as some of my older readers who were in their uh, late eighties and nineties, and everybody in between. So it, it, you want to, you want to please everybody. So they're sort of family stories. You know, there's something that you could pass on to your mum or your or your or your children, teenage children, um, or your grandma, and they would all enjoy them too. So I think that there's some, something nice about that, actually, because they can bring families together. You know, it's a nice book to share as a family. Cozy Mysteries are generally also pretty short reads, pretty quick reads, nice and easy, not demanding. It's quite, I quite often I get people saying, oh, yeah, they're nice, easy reads. And that actually is a real compliment because you have to put all of these complicated things in but still make it feel like a, like they're having a little rest while they're reading. <laughs> Typically, 50 to 60,000 words makes, I think all of my, all but one are about that length, but one trick or murder is slightly longer. But there are also successful, cosy writers who are writing maybe 40,000. And I've started also writing little sort of novelettes and about short novellas um, between uh, 12 and 16 or 17,000 words, just for fun, really, in between times. Um, and those seem to be going down quite well as well. So people are looking for something, something escapist and satisfying and upbeat to read that won't, that they can read even when they're tired, bedtime reading, when they're world weary, you know, they're nice little escapist reads. Fantastic. And I guess, I mean, like you mentioned at the beginning that you've been living in your village for 30 years and you talked about the bell ringers. And in my mind, that's great. You know, it's very English. It's very English to me to have a sort of bell ringing in a, in a Cotswold village. Yeah. And But it obviously helps you to write somewhere you know, but there must also be challenges of writing about somewhere so close to home. I mean, uh, you're well known in your village and it's like, well, is that is that modelled on Jane down the road? Or, you know, <laughs> is there a bit of... You know, how do you avoid gossip, but also presumably use village life in your books? How do you balance it all? Yeah, it's it's tricky I, because there are, I mean, my first novel, Best Murder in Show, was inspired by our annual village show, you know, traditional horticultural show. Carnival, the murder takes place on a carnival float. I've been on umpteen carnival floats in the village show in my time. And and those 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 things um, are obviously very familiar to local readers as well and they, they're happy to have the events celebrated because there's a lot of sort of local pride about all the things that go on in this village very busy village but I think the, 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 the key differentiation is to make sure that I'm not just lifting characters wholesale from the village so I I hope that all I, my my belief honest belief is that all my characters are made up they will certainly have 
certain characteristics that I've observed in other people, as are all writers. You know, you can't, unless you've lived in a cave for all your life before you start writing, you're all writers are bound to draw on characteristics in people that they've met in real life. But I don't lift people wholesale. I, I, I create them. Um, <laughs> my, my best friend, one of my best friends from school, um, says what Sophie says she's just you really isn't she <laughs> I'm old enough to be Sophie says mum and then some so <laughs> I take that with a pinch of salt but yeah I, I do consciously try to avoid recreating anybody who would be recognisable I mean I know loads and loads of people both in the village and in the school that I used to work work in. But I also have a very vivid imagination and I have met an awful lot of people elsewhere in my life who's who have also been equally inspiring. Mm. And you talked earlier about coming up with eccentric and unusual characters. So how do you, I mean, given that you have to have quite a cast for these books, you're populating a village and a school and all of this, how how are you coming up with characters that are eccentric and unusual? Do you have a go-to character method? Not really. It's kind of chicken and egg because the, the stories are led by character, really. I mean, they the, the, the events that happen happen because of the the eccentricities of the characters and so I start out by deciding the basic gist of the story you know what kind of crime is it going to be who's going to commit it the the subset of the village where it's going to take place like the village show or the the bonfire night party or wherever Um, and the characters kind of grow out of the need that the need that is created by choosing that particular setting so there's kind of, yeah, so character leads plot, but plot leads character. And also I just sort of open open my mind, really. I, and it sounds a bit bit sort of airy-fairy, but sometimes the characters just sort of step up and I'm not expecting them, or they start behaving in ways that I'm not expecting as I'm writing. I mean, there's an old boy who is in all of the books called Billy. He's a retired old boy who does odd jobs and knows everybody and has all these sort of country ways. And he started out as just being a customer in the tea room where Sophie is serving a cup of coffee just as something to happen in, in a particular chapter. And he ended up, he started heckling. You know, <laughs> and he ended up being quite a major character and uh, becoming very good friends with, with Sophie as well. I write about characters of all ages, from children up to, to the very elderly. And I guess that's one, that's another prompt for creating different characters as well is that I want to represent a village with people of all ages so I might think oh I haven't got anyone middle-aged you know I better here's here's an opportunity for them to come in I have a teenage boy who was just a sort of a prankster I think I don't think he was in the first one I think he was in the second came in the second one and he was such fun that he kind of insisted on staying and he's become quite a useful foil for Sophie and also a great source of comedy I really like spending time in his company <laughs> that's great oh, I love that so let's talk about some marketing stuff because your book covers have a really clear branding I mean to me they are okay I know what that is and <laughs> you know like you had the best best murder in show I think was it was with the the bunting on it and that kind of thing so did you get that right the first time and how did how are, what are the important elements I guess of making sure readers know what they're getting yeah, they have to be. Yes, it's really important to set the tone so that you know what you're getting on there. It's it's close. It's a close 
relationship, really, in a way to romantic comedies and chiclets. So they're upbeat, but they also have a, a, a an edginess to them. So all of mine have a little a little black sort of motif going across the top, whether it's the black bunting on Best Murdering Show or the leafless black spooky branches on Trick or Murder, the one that's set at Halloween. The font is very important as well. So there, the font is ever so slightly sort of anarchic, suggesting a little bit sort of lack of control and, and, and a slight gentle element of danger. It's not quite as swirly and sugary as the, as the font that you find on, on um, rom-com and chiclet. But I have to say I was, oh, and the colours as well. The colours are generally quite bright, sort of bright, pastely, cheery, upbeat, sometimes a bit more vivid. But um, they're, they're quite jolly, bright and cheerful colours. Now, I was really lucky because I absolutely landed on my feet by finding a cracking designer called Rachel Lawston of Lawston Design. And she, I already had in mind that I was going to have a series of seven books for this series. And I already had worked out what the titles were going to be for each one. And I talked it through with Rachel. And as, as with any good cover designer, it's real team, teamwork. You work together, brainstorm together. And she just came up with this branding. And, I, and it, was, it was spot on. I mean, she, the advantage of using a really good professional designer is that they know what works out there. They know what's in the marketplace. And whatever you think yourself, they will tell you what the right tropes are for the covers and the colour schemes, the fonts and so forth. And, and Rachel's done a terrific job. And also on my St Bride series as well, the school series, I think she's done a, done a really good job there as well. Um, and it's so important to get the cover right because it just shouts cosy mystery. And of course, it's got murder, the, the Sophie Sayers books have all got murder in the title, Springtime for Murder, Murder Lost and Found, whatever. So it's clear there's going to be a murder in there. <laughs> Um, or, or some kind of threat you know and so that is uh yeah it's really important to get that right yeah and you you're doing really well with these right as as far as I can see these are sort of your the books I mean the short stories are fantastic but they're not the thing that's making you the the income right now no no that's right I started out writing short stories and and I was really also finding my feet with self-publishing um writing short stories I published three volumes of short stories before I before I started um, writing the novels, and but now the and I've also got some. Um, I've been writing columns for local magazines, that is our local parish magazine, the local community magazine, Technologizer, for over ten years now. I've collected those into books as well, and those are starting to sell now off the back of people reading novels and wanting something else to, to fill the time before I get the next novel out. <laughs> Um, so although the, the short stories don't have the same sort of rural setting, they've got the same sort of style, humour, generally upbeat, a little bit more sort of sarcastic, I suppose, some of them, but a little bit more cynical humour. But um, they're, they're, it's all useful backlist stuff for people to read who, who like the novels. Um, but I have to say, I'm focusing on the novels and the the novelettes now. I feel I've sort of found my niche, and I'm really comfortable with that. I probably still write, will write some more short stories. I've got lots of ideas for short stories, but but I'm giving priority to writing the novels because that's what people want. Mm, absolutely. So, as well as the cover branding, what have been some of your most effective ways to market the books? Right. Well, certainly, and this is probably common for all cosy mystery writers, the best thing to do is to write a series as your starting point. Plan a series because if somebody likes the series, if they like the characters, they like your 
um, setting, then they will want more of the same. So A, write a series. And I'm very glad I made that decision because it's quite, you know, it's quite a big commitment, especially to put it out there and to state it in public. Before I'd even written the first one, this was going to be the first of a series of seven novels. I wasn't really sure that I could write one. <laughs> so that's a bit of a risk, um, but that paid off. So writing a series is good. When you've got a certain number of books out there, I would say make the first in series either cheaper or free to lure people in. And I've run a couple of free uh, BookBub feature deal promotions, which has been a great way to bring people into the series. And then you get read through where they get hooked on the on the one that they get for free and then they want to read the rest. I've also also got always got one of them at 99 cents or 99 pence so that there's if they've already read the free one and they want to try another one then they can and they're still not quite sure then they can they can snap up the 99p one the the books are very seasonal the series of seven runs the course of a village year from one summer to the next so my policy at the moment is that whichever one is the most seasonal will be 99p so the one that's set at between january and february that culminates in uh, murder on valentine's day um that's the one that's currently 99p um also uh, a mailing list having a mailing list magnet or having a mailing list at all of course is good <laughs> so yes. that people can sign up for when so that you can keep them posted when you've got your next book out um and having a mailing list magnet, um, the, the freebie that, that people who that they get as their sort of welcome gift, really, for joining your mailing list, that's the reward they get for trusting you with their email address. Having a mailing list magnet that is really relevant to your series is also very useful. And I think also I would recommend having that as one, something that they can't buy anywhere else so whether someone wants to join your mailing list because they've already read all your books and are desperate for the to know when the next one will be out or whether they want to try the freebie to see if they'll really like the rest it needs to work for both of those so my mailing list magnet is a novelette called the pride of peacocks which is it's a it's not a murder mystery it's just a gentle little mystery set in the village um and in features Sophie Sayers and Friends, and it also introduces the world of St Brides because there's a little crossover um, between, where St Brides, well, it's the first time St Brides gets mentioned in my fiction, and St Brides School is then the school that features in my second series. The And in every St Brides book, there's a crossover in that the, the two main characters um, in the St Brides stories, in each novel, well, there's only two so far, but in each novel, they at some point come over to Wendelbury Barrow and meet Sophie and um, the protagonist in the, in the St Brides books, Gemma Lamb, she becomes friends with Sophie Sayers. And so if St Brides readers haven't read the Sophie Sayers books, hopefully that will encourage them to do that as well. And of course, also, you should have all of those things in your back matter so that people are aware of the other series that you, the other books that you write, the other series that are available. I do a little bit of social media, but really having, I'm concentrating on getting more books out and uh, building my mailing list and promoting the first in series for both of them is the, is the main thing. I have done advertising with Amazon, but I don't particularly like doing it. <laughs> and, and all my books are wise I should say I, I took all my books wise about a year and a half ago and so advertising only on Amazon even though it's still the biggest market seems less relevant to me now 
that my books are available everywhere. Oh, I'm also starting to um, turn them all into audio. The first one, Best Murder in Show, is available as audio. Um, Secrets and Secrets and Brides, the first surprise one will be available as an audio shortly, and I'm going to gradually work my way through audio as well, so that I've got as many formats as possible out there, so that whatever people like, it's available for them. Mm. So I was wondering, do you do large print? Because that would seem quite a good uh, format. It's on, it's on my list for 2021, Joanna, because I, I'm absolutely right. I mean, large print would be really good for this, for my target audience, and I I think also with Cozy, interestingly, with Cozy, you do sell quite a lot of paperbacks. I sell upwards of 10% in print at the moment, which Mm. I think for an indie, that is quite a lot. Um, A lot of my friends sell far fewer than that, a much lower percentage than that. Um, But I think large print would be good and also it would be good for, for libraries as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a, a good idea because we were looking at my mum's numbers for so it's sweet romance, but you know it's a similar demographic because yeah. she does older older protagonists, and it was over fifty percent, I think, were print. Wow. Um, of which the majority was large print. So, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I think that's a really good idea. If and people listening as well, if your demographic is older, because what's interesting, people say, oh, but you know, and I used to think, oh, well, you can just change your e-reader to a larger font. But of course, some people really prefer print, and having a large print book is. I mean, I'm four, 46 this year, and I'm already starting to struggle with some of the books that people put out. You know, especially when they squash font. You know, you know, you when. Yeah. You get a book and you're like, how how did this get past the yeah. proofreader or something? Or was the proofreader in their thirties? <laughs> yes, I'm mean, still from a thing. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I, I must say, I, I did redo my interior format after my first book came out because uh, somebody told me that their 90 year old mum was having trouble reading it, <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's awful. I must, I must look after her. So I've now increased the the um, font and the leading, and I will I will. Yeah, I'm definitely planning to do large print as well. And yeah, I am of the age where when a book turns up that is in big print, I think, oh, how nice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how refreshing. So, it is so interesting to think about that. And so I hope people listening, definitely something to consider. And with print on demand, it's not that big a deal. And mm. you can actually do, there's a, a little checkbox on KDP print and on Ingram. You can use various things to, in fact, they might even added a checkbox there as well. So yeah, it's just another format. So before we run out of time, I did want to ask you about the Hawkesbury Upton Literary Festival, which I, I've been along to, and it's fantastic, of course, outside of pandemic times, yes. doing uh, in-person events is really good. But I know how much work it is for you. So what are the benefits of in-person events for authors and also, I guess, for communities? Yeah, it's it's um, it's very interesting, actually, Joanna, because I've... I've uh, my festival takes place in April, as you know, and so I've had to cancel both last year's and this year's, which is which is a, a big. It was a hard decision. It's a big decision, the right decision, because clearly we, it would have been wrong to hold it. But um, with the sudden everybody being on Zoom, doing everything, and quite a lot of festivals going on 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 Zoom or or other online formats, I did get asked, "Well, are you going to put it on Zoom?" I said, "Well." No, because it just wouldn't be the same. Because I, I think it's it's not only the talks, because obviously you can you can put talks on Zoom, but you but you don't have then all the 
things that happen in between the talks. You don't, and also you don't have the same engagement with the audience on Zoom because typically you'd mute everybody. You might have Q&A, but it's not the same as having an engaging conversation with an audience. And one of the things that I really love about Hawkesbury is that it feels very democratic. The audience are not at all inhibited about asking questions. And um, I've, I've was chairing one event once where it, it got um, got really quite lively, and I use that as a bit of a euphemism because we had a couple of people in the audience who were being ever so slightly um, rude to the speakers, and and it was quite a, a it, it was all it was all fine, everything worked out well. But somebody, as we were walking out of the venue afterwards, one of the audience said to me, "You never get that happening at Cheltenham." <laughs> Absolutely right. It's, there's the, the it's, a, it's a very genuine kind of engagement that you get between author and reader it's very nice for the authors to network as well and to there's a real camaraderie um, at Hawkesbury as you know we don't really have a green room unlike at Cheltenham where all the authors are tucked away and sort of marshaled to their events by hosts um, but, and and so the authors all, all mix together very freely and they also mix with the um, audience in the cafe and between venues and so it, it, it's, it's very sociable and it's also very um, motivating for the authors, nice for the, for the readers, to the audience to, to talk to the authors and get to know them and feel that they're um, you know, hobnobbing with the authors, but also very nice for the authors to get feedback from, from the readers, not only to remind you that the people reading out there are all flesh and blood who have their own opinions and views, but also to, to actively get feedback. And we had, I had a lovely children's author there once called Lou Hersey, who writes for teen fiction, um, sort of early teens. And she sat around for a while with some friends of my daughter's who was at that time was about 13 or 14 and she said afterwards that was the highlight for her was sitting and talking to a bunch of teenagers who were her target audience and sort of bouncing ideas off them and uh, and that kind of thing again you don't get in zoom and also of course with with the nature of the of the village this whole community that I'm celebrating here the 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 venue is part of the character that hosts the event you know people like to come to this this quirky little village and to go and, and our events are in funny places like the Bethesda, as you know, the Bethesda Chapel mm. and the Methodist Chapel and the school hall. And, and in the pub, we've had events in the pub, uh, one of the pubs. And, and that's part of the joy. It's all the stimulus. And, and, and you know, and you've, as you and, and I have both talked with Orna about the importance of filling the creative well. That kind of event really does give a creative buzz to both reader and writer. And you just don't get that on Zoom. Yeah, I'm with you. And also you don't get homemade cakes or a pint of ale at the pub. <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't do much without without drinking cakes in this in fact funny enough, I'm also on the village shop committee and alcohol and cakes are our two best sellers all through the pandemic. <laughs> oh well that's great. And it's it's I definitely think very fondly of the festival and, and everything in person now. It's so funny because I feel like well it's one of the things we took for granted and I probably was like oh I don't want to go and do another thing because I don't want to see people and now I'm just desperate for it yeah yeah. yes yes it will be it's a it's a long way off till we have the April 2022 one but uh, oh well let's hope it's all back by then I mean goodness I hope so yes yes (laughs) absolutely well look that's fantastic Debbie where can people find you and your books online 
Well, I have my author website um, as a starting point for everything. It's got my social media on there as well. And that is authordebbyyoung.com. And but you'll also find it if you just put my name um, into uh, search engine, um, into Amazon or hopefully into other providers as well as my books are wide. It's Debbie Young spelt the the most common way, very common name. (laughs) And uh, I'm on active on I've got a Facebook page I'm on Twitter a little bit and I'm just starting to get into Instagram as well that's been quite fun networking with with readers and book bloggers on on and other authors on Instagram so I'm in any of those places thanks so much for your time Debbie it's a pleasure thank you so much been really nice chatting to you even online So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Debbie today and got a little glimpse into the Cotswold village life and got some ideas for your own books. In next week's show, I'm talking to Tristra New Year Jaeger from the Music Tectonics podcast on the parallels with the music industry and what we can learn. I'll also be reporting back on some of what I've been learning at South by Southwest from empowered indie musicians. The music industry is usually a few years ahead of book publishing, so it's definitely fascinating to see what might be coming up. So happy writing! And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.